Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Despite ongoing research efforts, disease-modifying agents for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease still do not exist. Cholinesterase inhibitors, such as donapazil, galantamine, and rivastigmine, which offer symptomatic improvement or stabilization, remain the recommended first-line treatment for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, with rivastigmine and donapazil also indicated alone or in combination with memantine in moderate to severe disease stages. Rivastigmine is the only cholinesterase inhibitor also approved for the treatment of mild to moderate Parkinson's disease dementia. This article provides an overview of the pharmacology, mechanism of action, and chemical properties of rivastigmine. Findings of clinical studies with rivastigmine capsules, the rationale for transdermal delivery, supportive clinical data and practical guidance on the use of rivastigmine transdermal patch in dementia management, particularly Alzheimer's disease, are discussed. Development of this manuscript was supported by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Patients with fibromyalgia have reported experiencing discouragement, rejection, suspicion, and stigma during their encounters with healthcare professionals. The impact of these experiences on health outcomes has not been extensively examined. The aim of this study was to assess fibromyalgia patients' self-reported quality of life and pain based on the following. Perceptions of physician attitudes, trust in physicians, perceptions of medical professionals, type of treatment, and various demographic variables. An online survey was advertised in the electronic newsletter of the National Fibromyalgia and Chronic Pain Association, and data were collected in February 2013. The survey resulted in 670 usable responses. Results showed that like other chronic pain conditions, patient self-report of symptoms is subjective and may not be confirmed by objective diagnostic tests. Nonetheless, fibromyalgia patients' quality of life decreased if they perceived their physician discounted symptoms or treated reports of symptoms in a distrustful manner. Another important finding was the relationship between patients' trust in their physician and self-reported levels of pain. Greater trust in physicians was associated with lower reported levels of pain by fibromyalgia patients. Two-thirds of the patients in this study utilized some form of complementary and alternative medicine. The findings of this study are consistent with the positive effects of the therapeutic relationship on health outcomes consistently reported in the literature. Positive physician-patient relationships appear to increase quality of life and decrease self-reported pain levels for patients diagnosed with fibromyalgia. The use of complementary and alternative medicine treatments in the fibromyalgia patient population is common as it appears to improve quality of life. 
physicians should consider the importance of validating symptoms, building trusting relationships, and assessing for complementary and alternative medicine use when treating patients with fibromyalgia. This post hoc analysis aimed to determine whether patients with major depressive disorder in duloxetine clinical trials exhibited differences in efficacy and functioning among antidepressant naive patients and patients previously exposed to antidepressants. Data were pooled from 15 double-blind, placebo, or active-controlled duloxetine trials of adult patients with major depressive disorder. The analyses included more than 3,100 duloxetine-treated patients and 1,350 placebo-treated patients. Patient data were analyzed based on four pretreatment subgroups. 1. Patients naive to antidepressant treatment and experiencing their first episode of depression. 2. Patients naive to antidepressant treatment and having experienced more than one major depressive episode. 3. Patients who were previously treated with SSRIs only. And 4. Patients who were treated with other antidepressants in addition to or instead of SSRIs. The primary efficacy measure was the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. Functional impairment was assessed with the Sheehan Disability Scale. Response and remission rates were significantly greater for duloxetine versus placebo in each of the four subgroups. Response and remission rates were numerically greater for first episode versus multiple episode and drug-treated patients. Small but notable differences of the treatment effect were observed over the four subgroups. Overall, duloxetine showed a fairly homogeneous therapeutic effect in efficacy and functionality, independent of episode frequency and antidepressant pretreatment status. This study was funded by Eli Lilly and Company. About 50% of patients with bipolar disorder also suffer from a pain disorder. This comorbidity has a high rate of morbidity and mortality. Many drugs used to treat pain disorders can cause manic switching in weight gain and may contribute to polypharmacy. The objective of this review was to determine if any monotherapy drug treatment has robust efficacy to treat comorbid bipolar disorder and chronic pain. The American Psychiatric Association Treatment Guidelines for Bipolar Mood Disorder and the 2012 Cochrane Database for Pain Disorders were reviewed. The authors relied on the treatment guides to determine if the drugs that are supported by the American Psychiatric Association to treat bipolar disorder have supporting data from the Cochrane Database for Chronic Pain. No single drug was mentioned by either guideline to treat this comorbidity. However, carbamazepine is the only drug with guideline-supported robust efficacy in the management of each condition separately. Carbamazepine was found to have strong preclinical data for the treatment of comorbid bipolar mood disorder and chronic pain disorders. While requiring more studies in this population, the authors propose that this treatment modality may benefit patients. 
The promise of fewer side effects with newer antipsychotics such as risperidone, quetiapine, and olanzapine for schizophrenia launched in the mid-90s opened the door for widespread prescribing. However, by early 2000, reports indicated that these newer drugs were causing obesity, dyslipidemia, and diabetes at alarming rates. In 2004, the American Psychiatric Association, American Diabetes Association, American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, and North American Association for Study of Obesity developed metabolic monitoring guidelines for new antipsychotics. A decade later, metabolic monitoring remains off the radar for most non-psychiatry prescribers and dispensers of antipsychotics as the result of expanded label indications, inordinate non-labeled use, misperceived overall safety, lack of risk awareness, and shortages of mental health providers. To address the gaps in metabolic monitoring, a prospective study of 120 subjects was conducted in three community mental health settings to see primarily if point-of-care testing of lipids, glucose, and blood pressure could help identify metabolic syndrome, and secondly, whether randomly assigning subjects to pharmacists providing comprehensive medication management would improve outcome. Although there was no difference in clinical outcome after one year, results demonstrated that over 70% of subjects had metabolic syndrome and utilization of point-of-care testing allowed pharmacists to identify higher rates of dyslipidemia and hypertension at baseline compared to the usual care control group. The authors conclude that current evidence best supports an interprofessional approach including pharmacists for routine metabolic screening, monitoring, and comprehensive medication management for all patients with severe persistent mental illness who are prescribed antipsychotics. Medications classified as antipsychotics and severe persistent mental illness should be included as secondary causes of metabolic syndrome and related risks in the primary care provider's differential diagnosis. This study was funded by grant support from the Medica Foundation and Peters Institute of Pharmaceutical Care. Depressive episodes predominate over the course of bipolar disorder and cause considerable functional impairment. Antidepressants are frequently prescribed in the treatment of bipolar depression despite concerns about efficacy and risk of switching to mania. In this issue's continuing medical education offering, the authors provide a critical examination of the evidence for and against the use of antidepressants in bipolar depression. Mood stabilizers should be used as first-line treatment for bipolar depression, and adjunctive antidepressant treatment should only be considered if this strategy fails. Particular caution is required when considering an antidepressant if there is agitation, evidence of rapid cycling, manic episodes, prior antidepressant-induced worsening of the condition, or family history of mania. Mixed depressive conditions are more likely to have more episodes, rapid cycling, and hypomanic switches with antidepressant treatment compared with a unipolar illness. 
The body of evidence on the use of antidepressant monotherapy to treat patients with bipolar depression is contentious, but the recommendations from evidence-based guidelines do not support antidepressant monotherapy for bipolar depression. The authors emphasize that adjunctive treatment with an antidepressant should be considered only when mood stabilizer or antipsychotic monotherapy has failed. Eating disorders are common among overweight individuals in primary care settings, but often go undetected. This study aimed to determine how self-report questionnaires perform in comparison to gold-standard structured interviews in identifying eating disorders in a sample of individuals with overweight and obesity who were seeking weight loss treatment. 100 men and women consecutively referred to a weight loss clinic completed interviews based on both DSM-4 and newly revised DSM-5 criteria for eating disorders and also completed a set of self-report questionnaires typically utilized for primary care eating disorder screening. Self-reports and interviews agreed to a great extent in the identification of full-syndrome diagnoses, such as bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. Modestly, for the new DSM-5 sub-threshold form of binge eating disorder, and not at all for the new DSM-5 categories of other specified eating disorders, such as night eating syndrome. The author suggests specific changes that might better align existing self-report questionnaires with DSM-5 criteria in order to improve the identification of newly recognized eating disorders. Primary care physicians using the presented measures as screening tools should be cautious about missing individuals with sub-threshold eating disorders until new DSM-5-based self-report questionnaires are available. This research was supported by a junior faculty fellowship from the Klarman Family Foundation, a research grant from the Hilda and Preston Davis Foundation, and in part by a postdoctoral fellowship from the Swiss National Science Foundation. Mental health is too often neglected in low- and middle-income countries. More specifically, Eating disorders are commonly believed to be rare or non-existent in the African region. However, due to the exposure to Western culture, a rise in eating disorders among African women is reported in the literature. This article presents the case of a 17-year-old Ethiopian girl with bulimia nervosa and rumination syndrome, conditions characterized respectively by binge eating and ruminating food. Her medical condition was initially unrecognized and therefore untreated. She consulted several health professionals before receiving appropriate diagnosis and care, largely due to the fact that, broadly speaking, there is little knowledge and understanding of mental health conditions among health care professionals, including physicians, in low-income and middle-income countries. Research on the detection, diagnosis, and treatment of rumination syndrome is needed, as the available evidence is insufficient. 
Providing the necessary attention to mental disorders, including eating disorders, is of paramount importance in low-income and middle-income countries where mental health services are usually insufficient and huge segments of the population do not have access to health care. As publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. The CNS Job Market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified health care professionals. Just as you rely on the primary care companion for CNS disorders for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, advanced searching, social media integration, and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com, where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as many timely case reports, a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.